You're listening to a podcast from the British Academy, the UK's national body for the humanities and social sciences. Welcome to the British Academy. Thank us for our time series. This wonderful chance to talk about Merce Cunningham ahead of his centenary celebrations. First of all, I'm going to introduce you to all the speakers. Alastair McCauley, former chief dance critic of the New York Times, who is writing a book on Merce Cunningham. Hélène Neveu-Kringelbach, who is senior lecturer in African studies at UCL. And Arabella Stanger, lecturer in drama, theatre and performance, University of Sussex. I'm Sue Jones at the University of Oxford, and I will be chairing the discussion. So to kick off, I thought it would be useful to situate Merce in a British context. And um, since London is quite high on the agenda in Merce's career, I thought, Alistair, you might begin by telling us something about why it was so important to Merce. In 1964, Cunningham's various colleagues in the art world, notably Robert Rauschenberg, but also Jasper Johns and all the artists who had begun to make money from their new paintings, pooled some resources because they believed in Cunningham to fund a world tour, which lasted at least six months, took them over to Japan, India, elsewhere. They came to England by way of the Venice Biennale, where Rauschenberg himself, who was touring with the Cunningham Company, he was the main designer and he even set the stage every night. He won the Biennale Prize that year. And some of the advance attention from Venice preceded the Cunningham Company when it then came to Sadler's Wells. Something in London suited Cunningham and vice versa. Lou Lloyd, the company manager, has always said the moment the curtain rose at Sadler's Wells, they all knew that they were being watched in a way that they had never been watched before. I mean, I should explain at the time, the New York Times had never reviewed Cunningham at all. One or two other leading critics like Walter Terry had just poured boiling oil over Cunningham. He had his followers, but it was pretty minorly. Suddenly, with Saddlespells, he was major, and on the strength of that, the presenter at Saddlespells took a risk and put the Cunningham Company on at the Phoenix Theatre for the three following weeks. So Cunningham, for the first time, who'd never had a week in New York, now had a month in London. The rest was history. I'm sure London lapped Cunningham up because it connected to the theatre of the absurd, which has suddenly become the vogue here with Harold Pinter, with Samuel Beckett, with UNESCO, everything that's been promoted at the Royal Court and other theatres. I'm sure that's part of the connection. I've always seen it. That's absolutely extraordinary to think that he got that, you know, liftoff from from London itself. So that really leads us on to think about what was it that really grabbed those critics at that time. Perhaps we could talk a little bit about Cunningham as an example of a radical dance aesthetic. Just picking up from where Alistair left off, I think it is super interesting in Cunningham's story that he made his way to Europe on the back of uh, a group of devoted collaborators and fellow artists. And that was his audience. Uh, up until 1964, and as Alistair said, that was sort of the turning point in his career, after which the recognition flowed in the US as well from uh, dance critics and from the State Department. Only in 1968 did he get federal funding. So he had this audience and this devoted base of artists who were dancers, musicians, visual artists, and theatre makers. And so responding to Sue's question, 
I have something in my mind that US theatre director Robert Wilson once said about Cunningham that I find really striking and makes sense to me in the way that I have danced and also watched Cunningham's work, that he saw when watching Cunningham's work so much freedom. That was what Wilson said. And that this modelling of a promise of freedom on stage, I think is one of the elements of Cunningham's work that uh, speaks to what you call the radical dance aesthetic. And I was just thinking about this, how it goes all over Cunningham's work. Freedom from certain traditions of composition in dance and music and the visual arts. Mm -hmm. Freedom in terms of freedom from the ground. And I'm thinking about Cunningham's legendary status as a very light, buoyant dancer who seemed really at home in the air. And there's something as well about freedom his stage works modeling an ideal social kind of freedom. And his work is often spoken about in these utopian terms. And I think that's where it gets really, really tricky because there was, there's lots of uh, questions around control and discipline in his work as well. Ellen, I wonder if we could bring you in here because um, one of the things we haven't talked about yet is Merce's Americanness. I mean, we've been celebrating the fact that he, he got a start in London with the previews and so on there. How would you want to characterize what makes him American? Merce is an American choreographer, but he's actually different things to different people in different parts of the world. And mm -hmm. I think part of his success is that he is at once a very American choreographer but he also has managed to capture something universal and something sufficiently open-ended that the French find him very French in his uh, way of working. He appeals to them, and choreographers in Francophone West Africa, for example, also find resonance with their work and the kind of boundary-breaking that they engaged in. But, of course, he is a very American choreographer, and I think it's probably something to do with what Arabella said about the post-war context. So he's American in a particular context where there is uh, an urge and a real uh, desire to break down the boundaries that refer to a past that has uh, broken down. In order to usher in a new world order, you need to experiment, you need to break down the boundaries that characterize society before the war. And that's what most does. And we come back to all the multiple boundaries that he helps to break down. I think his ability to use the kind of artistic experiments that were happening in the US in the post-World War, not only in dance, but also in music, in mm -hmm. visual arts, uh, in architecture, in ideas about space, his ability to combine that in new choreographic forms is probably what is very important in his early work. He had that ability to combine different forms and he also had the confidence to do this. So that's the other point I wanted to say about his Americanness to me. The confidence to experiment and be prepared to fail is also at the heart of his work. When his experiments with music did not work out, he just uh, abandoned pieces. He wasn't afraid to fail and try again. And there is something 
very American about that. It's definitely not French. There's a really lovely story, anecdote, that speaks to that point about Cunningham's confidence to fail. That he's told a few times about a time when he was working on a very, very difficult dance in 1953 early at Black Mountain College, and the dance was Untitled Solo. And he was working on it alongside the pianist David Tudor, and Cunningham just couldn't get it. It was so difficult. He'd set himself this impossible task with a new, like, hyped-up version of his chance procedures for this dance. And he couldn't do it, and he said he collapsed on the floor. And David Tudor said, well, this is impossible, clearly, but we're going to do it anyway. And that sort of set the tone for the work from then onwards, so I completely agree with Ellen there. That became a motto for Cunningham for the rest of his life. At the end of his life, he, when the company was touring, and he was now nearing 90, often he would make new pieces, sketch it out on the, un, on the apprentices around the company, and he would get them into work, and he would say, I don't know if this is possible, but... And that was the premise on which they would work. He'd try to set them something seemed to be more or less impossible, and then they could work. Do you think Alastair has anything to do with his early training, his early background in tap dancing and other forms? Well, I think he took... He, he trained with his beloved Mrs. Maud Barrett in his hometown, Centralia, in both tap and ballroom, and he derived crucial things from both of those. And I would think the most important thing from tap was simply that he learned that you are the music when you create tap. You're not just responding to music, you're making it, you're embodying it, you create the rhythm, and that's crucial. From ballroom, of course, he learnt a kind of partnering, harmony with the woman, that became his main model for uh, duets right to the end of his life. It's odd because we know that in private life, Cunningham lived with John Cage. Uh, there's almost no same-sex duets in his choreography. Cunningham somehow could not break from that mould. Interestingly, he drew strength from it. He just made a series of the greatest male-female duets in choreography there, up there with Balanchines and other people. They're phenomenal. Generally, the model, he could vary from it, was that man and woman stay pretty close spatially together, and there's male support for the woman. There's some independence between the two, and he, of course he pushes it into Beckett-like areas of ambiguity, but the connection between the two is fascinating, and once or twice he would say to people, it's ballroomy. That's interesting because he's already defying so many stereotypes right from the beginning and the stereotypes that we have posthumously given him. But I'm wondering here if um, we could think about one of the earlier stereotypes in criticism, which is that he's, always, he's responding against Graham, that he was in the Martha Graham company, um, but so was May O'Donnell and various other people who went on to experiment in, in similar ways to Merce. But I'm wondering, is there anything we could say about his legacy that carries on from Graham at all? I'm sure that he took from the two great choreographers of the day when he arrived in New York. One was Graham, in whose company he danced for six or seven years. And of course, he took the use of the torso from her, a mm -hmm. um, much more intense use of the whole back and torso than any other choreographer, and he used a version of the Graham contraction, somewhat different from Graham's, but that's the derivation. From Balanchine, of course, he took the virtuoso use of the legs, the upright stance, and of course, being Cunningham, he had to 
differ from both those two great <laughs> choreographers. Graham was about expression uh, and communication, and Cunningham absolutely was into poetic ambiguity, to put it mildly. Balanchine was into musicality, and Cunningham absolutely drew away from being connected to music. Just listening to you speak, I realise as... It, although he had one foot in, in Graham's camp by uh, making the spine elastic and one foot in ballet, and particularly the Balanchine ballet camp, uh, by making the footwork extremely fast so that you could hardly see it. I think maybe a way in which Cunningham shows us how Graham and Balanchine are doing something similar, actually, which is to make dancers very big on stage mm -hmm. and to gobble up space. And Cunningham said, I love this, that when he was dancing with Graham on stage in those early days, he was really aware of her being much smaller than him physically, but he felt like she was the same size as him on stage because that's how she occupied space. Yes, he was a dissident, but yes, he took and combined or showed the mutuality of Graham and Balanchine's interest in making space large. I remember once asking him about intensity. A dancer had told me, oh, when so-and-so, the deputy then running the company, teaching many of the classes, tells us to do tendu, which is just a basic pointing of the toe, we do it one way. When Merce tells us to do it tendu, we do it differently. And, that, and they just left it there. And I repeated this in a public interview with Cunningham. And he looked at me rather sharply and said, well, what's the difference? So I said, Merce, I wasn't there. But I think what they mean is they just do it with a lot more intensity for you. And Merce just said, oh, I've always wanted intensity. And he then straight away quoted John Cage, who organized his first percussion orchestra at Seattle when Merce was a student in 1938. And Cage was taking his various players through the way they were playing. And he said to one of them, now you're playing that perfectly. Now take it further and make a few mistakes. Yeah. Since we're on the question of space, I think we could talk a little bit about how radical Merce's deconstruction of stage space was and how he talked about collapsing the proscenium arch. Well, there is a lot to say about Cunningham's use of space. Maybe a place to start is Cunningham himself. He said that he was very taken by Einstein's idea uh, that there were no fixed points in space. And he started from this point and reflected, well, if that's true, then it means that every point in space is equally interesting. And every point in space is always shifting and always moving. So it's his sort of choreographic appropriation of a generic Einsteinian relativity. And I think you can see that commitment to space that's constantly moving and that's decentralized across all parts of Cunningham's practice. I think perhaps this is a very good illustration of his innate sense of what uh, creativity is about and what will create thrill in audiences. He understood that you had to combine a sense of the familiar with the unexpected. He was doing that with music and he was doing that mm -hmm. with space. It was precisely to create a space within which you would feel at once safe and within the familiar, but also be completely disoriented when you least expected it. Yeah. 
And we now know from uh, neuroscience, the thrill, the pleasure of music, performance, and many other things come precisely from this combination of the familiar and the completely unexpected, but within reasonable limits, within codes that we are still familiar with. And I think he had this uncanny ability to apply that to all elements of performance. And I'm sure this attitude to space connects, of course, to the painters of the day, mm. not just Robert Rauschenberg and Jasper Johns, but their predecessors, the abstract expressionists, the action painters, the way that they would make the whole of the canvas equal, that what was going on in the peripheries of the canvas was just as central, as important as the literal center. Um, and another artist I think is important to Cunningham and Cage was, of course, the great sculptor Alexander Calder, the inventor of the great mobiles. And the idea that a mobile is a work about emotion, that you never quite can define it, it's relative to everything else that is going on within the mobile. I've sometimes looked at Cunningham's choreography and think, oh, I can see a human being become sometimes a mobile as the different parts of the body are interrelating mm -hmm. in motion. That's really interesting, Alice. I'm wondering if we are moving towards something that Marjorie Perloff talked about in relation to poetry of the time, in particular, and Cage as part of this uh, Pound tradition, the Ezra Pound tradition. Uh, I think she called it regulated anarchy. And I wonder if that in some ways sums up a lot of what we've been talking about here. I think it might bring us on to the, you know, the big thing about... Cunningham, which is his chance procedures, and to what degree are these uh, entirely arbitrary? To what degree do they include some kind of process? I can't begin here, just because I've been going through his notes in the Library of the Performing Arts in New York, and there are some ones where you just see that he spends not days, but weeks and months just shaking dice or tossing coins, just working out as he's preparing a piece where chance is going to take him. Of course, you can't do everything that chance tells you to, but it frees you up. It gave him directions to pursue that the mind itself, the instinct, would not have. That was the main use of chance. But it is phenomenal how much he does with chance. It would determine rhythm. It would determine space. And the dancers never knew. They knew that he taught tossed coins, they never saw him do it. So almost every dancer at the time was in mystery. Um, but you go through his notes and there's the evidence. It's really phenomenal. Cunningham's use of chance procedures, which probably began around 1951, I think, um, which is when John Cage also became interested in chance and the two had been introduced to a new translation of the I Ching. Um, which they used in their chance procedures. This opened up a tremendous amount for Cunningham and it opened him up to the unknown. And I think that that was really important and it roots back to Hélène's point of his interest in, in impossibility and failure. Um, but yes, Alistair, that's so great about these notes, like piles of notes in the archive because it was so deeply systematic, the use of chance. And nothing arbitrary about it at all. It was, I think even the early use of chance was computational before Cunningham even came to work with computers, which he did in, in the early 1990s. So there's something here, a tension between system and freedom again, that I think is really interesting about Cunningham's work. And I also really enjoy thinking about the amount of labor that went into producing his dances. He, talking about, a work from 94, Ocean, 
he said that it took him one hour to produce 15 seconds of material before teaching it to the dancers. And it's a 90-minute dance, so you can do the math. I'm never sure how much he's pulling our leg about these things, but certainly he was deeply committed to the system of the chance procedure so that he could rewire his instinct and will um, and produce... Uh, orientations in space, combinations of dancer, types of rhythm, um, interrelationships with music and design that previously would have been unthinkable to him and his collaborators. I think that was the ideal that was driving the use of chance, but always, always relying upon system. I always, uh, when I think about his relationship to chance, I always think about structuralism, and I, he's never presented as someone who worked within the frames of structuralism. But as an anthropologist, I always see him as somebody who is perpetually searching for the deeper structures of the mind and for mm. the deeper structures of movement, the deeper structures of what drives human beings. He doesn't say this always explicitly because he is an innovator, but he's not the kind of artist who will say very explicitly that he is a revolutionary. So he seems to be looking for non-explicit, discrete ways of unsettling all the boundaries while searching for deeper structures in culture, while not saying what he's actually doing. It's quite, there is a, a very mysterious element about his search which I think is part of his continual appeal. Cunningham always said that he wasn't into psychology at all. He'd left that to Martha Graham and his predecessors. But actually, I think sometimes you watch some of the choreography, it's as if he's going for just the undercurrents, the understructures you're talking about. I remember so well something, I think he made it for changing steps in the 70s. But you just see a woman poised on half toe, balancing on both feet, but up, up, up. And just you're aware of the balance that she's trying to maintain her body. And then suddenly she just isolates a shoulder and rolls it. And it's like a strange impulse from another part of her being. It becomes, with the right dancer, as if you're watching somebody in Dostoevsky. A completely dark impulse comes out of this otherwise civilized exterior. And by the way, he was interested in Dostoevsky and in so many other authors. He was interested in Chekhov. I think the spatial connections you get in Chekhov, that three different things can happen in Chekhov on a stage at the same time. He was a strange man. On tour, once without telling any of the people, he taught himself Russian. <laughs> Nobody knew at the time. And years later, when he got, he worked on the duet with Mikhail Baryshnikov for his 80th birthday, he sent Baryshnikov an invitation in perfect Cyrillic script. <laughs> and they became great friends. Do you think that that's one of the reasons that we sometimes associate uh, Mercer's work with ballet, with classical ballet, this deep structural underpinning of, of classical ballet and the centering of the body? What does he do with that? There's plenty about Cunningham's work that is like ballet, and it's more like ballet perhaps than any other kind of modern dance. The differences, though, are so striking. I remember once somebody asking him rather angrily in Montreal in 1985, your dancers have got more like ballet. They used to be more interesting, more unusual, and so forth. And like, Cunningham replied politely, but eventually just wrapped up in the kind of said, I don't just ask them to use their legs, I ask them to use their backs too. The point was, I'm using their backs in a way that ballet people never quite do.
Generally, ballet is about facing front, facing the audience, facing into the theatre. Cunningham's dancers were prepared to do that and did so, but they were also trained to look every other direction as if that was front. It was front because that's what the technique taught you to do. Wherever you are is where you are. You're not just relating to the audience. You're in your own space, commanding your own dimension. That's, I think, one reason why so often he was brilliantly equipped to suggest wildlife. Some of his pictures are nature studies, and he just mm. suggests fauna and a landscape. Yes. He did use Epplemont, but he would insist that it came from much deeper in the waist. The only ballet person to whom that really relates is Nijinska, and to some degree Ashton, which is perhaps one reason that the British cottoned on, because Ashton loved Cunningham's work as soon as he saw it. But there is some Epplemont in Ashton, for example, Month of the Country, where you turn from deep in the waist, rotate the whole torso from there. About music, you said to me in a previous discussion that you're very taken with his particular kind of musicality. Well, it's more what he does with music and his experiment with John Cage. Of course, he was a pioneer in uh, disconnecting music composition from movement in the choreographic process. But I think there is something radical and at the same time which resonates with the use of music in many other cultural contexts. I think one of the reasons why people in West Africa, for example, find his relationship to music composition exciting is that he's telling us that there is value in silence, that silence is a mode of action. And in fact, in West African percussive music, that's exactly what you're doing. That's what you're doing in syncopation, for example. You're using silence in strategic places to create additional excitement in the rhythm. Now, if you extend this in music composition, what you're really doing is playing around with silence and playing around with shifting the relationship between movement and music and making it unexpected. That's very much what he's working with, without saying so explicitly. And that's one of the things that choreographers in West Africa often mention, his relationship to music composition as being incredibly exciting. You take this very intimate connection between movement and music that people know in West Africa, and then you play around with it. You deconstruct it and create something new which results in something that is still dance, but that is no longer dance at the same time, precisely because in that context, dance is something where movement and music are very closely connected. So you still recognize dance, but you create something entirely different, mm. which then becomes accessible to people who do not want to repeat traditional dance, who do not want to be doing what people from the griot, praise singing, category do, for example. They want to do something much more personal. They want to work with these codes, but disrupt them. And he seems to be giving them inspiration to do that through the connection between music and movement in a different way. I wonder if his, um, this particular interest in the silence between things, between takes, between rhythms, also plays into his experimentation with film and with technologies. 
Silence had, of course, become important to him because of his partner John Cage's famous experiment, 4 minutes 33, the silent composition. And Cunningham refers to it in various of his works. When Cage died, he made a solo for himself in the middle of a much longer piece called Enter, where Cunningham simply stood still for 4 minutes 33. 4 minutes 33 has three sections, and in his standstill solo, he stood still for three sections across the stage. Uh, there are certain works where in the notes he just marks certain areas as silent. Now, quite what he means by movement being silent is something I'd love to know more about. My favourite Cunningham piece probably is a work from 1984 called Doubles. I find it very lyrical and actually Chekhovian. But when the dancers say that Cage would be invited, even with a piece that he wasn't composing the music for, just to watch a late rehearsal. And in this case, he leant over to Merce and said something. And after that, Merce made a difference to it, which was that he put in two sections into the dance when there was nobody on stage. That's the spatial equivalent of silence. Well, I think we've had a great discussion here. I wonder if, just to conclude, everyone would just give us a sense of what Cunningham means to them particularly, in one sentence. I've always been interested in Cunningham against popular notions for quality of expression and drama. I've always found that each of his works is some kind of play and creates its own world. Mine is quite personal, I think. The, the first, my first encounters with Cunningham were dancing his technique, and I found it incredibly strange and I didn't know what was going on. And then I watched his work and I found it incredibly strange and I didn't know what was going on. And I didn't understand what I was seeing. And so it was one of these offerings to me as a dancer and an audience member and now a scholar and a teacher that it's the type of work that reorganizes one's sense of what's possible in space and time. I would say that to me Cunningham is perhaps the choreographer who forces us most to rethink what dance is and is not. And he also has this universal quality which means that he is different things to different people. I think with that we should finish our chat because I couldn't think of anything better to say than those three ideas. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the British Academy. To hear more like this, you can subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud or your own podcast app by searching the British Academy. To find out more about the work the British Academy does, including upcoming events, please visit thebritishacademy.ac.uk.